morning, everybody. It is um, it's early on a Saturday morning, and this is the first uh, first episode of the Christian Ethics in the Wild podcast variety. I don't know if there will be there probably will be more. This is this is very kind of off the cuff and experimental. I don't have bumper music. I don't have a production team. It's just me <laughs> sitting in my office, uh, my home office at home. Um, I have really enjoyed doing this newsletter for the last year and some change. And I'm really super grateful for everyone who has subscribed and everyone who's come along for the journey so far. Um, and particularly, I've been uh, really heartened by the, some of the responses that I've gotten to this little mini-series on Ivan Illich. Whenever I bring Illich up in conversation or I bring him up in uh, on the newsletter, there's always this, this response that is a little bit... Uh, it's, it's exciting to me to see people kind of latching on to the vision of someone like him who just wants to go for it. There are the world of Christian ethics, I think, can be either very measured and very careful. And I think that there's certainly a place for that. Um, but can it also be kind of uncareful in a way that gets really sloppy and gets very, um, I don't know, almost emotivist, uh, almost just kind of like painting a wild vision, but having absolutely not thought about any of the particulars at all. And so Illich, for me, kind of strikes the middle the middle ground. All of his writing is very well, he's it's very well thought out. There's lots of footnotes <laughs> he's done. You read his biography, you realize he did a lot of kind of seminar work and did a lot of, a lot of research on, on the various topics that he gets into. Um, and so he speaks out of a wealth of uh, experience and knowledge about a great many of the things that he writes about, but he also writes with a great deal of audacity um, that the world we have does not have to be the world we have, and he's not going to set himself on fire about it, but he's also going to point out the, the foolishness of much of the world that we have. So it's always someone like Illich just really is... And he's such a breath of fresh air on a great many things. So I've enjoyed uh, doing a bit more of a deep dive this last few weeks with Illich and happy for happy for y'all to come along with me. So this is this one is a bit of an experiment. Um, Substack has this little podcasting feature built in so that you can either upload stuff or you can just kind of do stuff off the cuff, such as what I'm doing. It's early Saturday morning. No one is up. And I thought that I would try this. I wanted to think with y'all a bit more about this question of something about Illich that uh, that came up, um, kind of in conversation with a friend. We were talking, we were we were chatting back and forth about baseball. Um, I'm a baseball fan. This is baseball season. I don't regularly get to watch baseball games, even during baseball season, for because I have little kids and because I live far, far away from any baseball teams. Um, but we were commenting about kind of a recent development within a lot of major league sports to incorporate nets into the stadiums. So you have, if you've ever been to a baseball game, you know that there's a lot of foul balls. Sometimes uh, a bat will 
slip out of the batter's hands and it'll fly into the stands. There's all sorts of there's also sorts of ways in which going to a baseball game is just relaxing and like one of the most wonderful experiences in the world. But there's also a little bit of risk involved. Um, if you're, you know, too deep in meditation while you're watching the game and a foul ball starts heading your way, it's going to be kind of a shock. Um, the occasional bat does fly into the stands, but not very often. And so all these nets that have been going up, I think seemed when this is part of the conversation that we were having is whether or not this is kind of an, an instance of a broader trend toward wanting to make society safe. I could, I took the position that it's a more, it's a pretty measured reaction. You know, it's probably okay to have some nets up there to protect the folks that are, uh, most in danger of a foul ball getting hit, um, hit directly behind. So again, if you've been to a baseball game, foul balls come in in various shapes and sizes. There's kind of the, the long looping foul ball that goes, um, down the first or third base side that you have plenty of time to prepare for. You can kind of see where it's going and get yourself out of the way or get ready to try to catch it, um, as best you can. Um, but the kind that, that, that ricochet directly backward when the batter hits it off the top, off the top of the bat, um, those are not, those don't have, you don't have much warning with those. Those are coming at you pretty hard and fast. And so I can get the need for some extra protection for the fans for those. That seems like a a fairly modest thing to install. You're not going overboard. You're not trying to protect all the fans from all the foul balls ever, because that's part of the game. How many times have I been to a game and seen kind of a foul ball, you know, uh, bouncing into the stands and all the kids kind of jump up and start running after it? I mean, that's awesome. To go home with a foul ball from a baseball game is like the best souvenir that you could get. And I don't want to deprive kids of that. Um, But at the same time, it's probably okay to protect fans that are pretty close to home plate from a 130 mile an hour uh, foul ball that's coming their way. That's probably a reasonable thing to do. But it really raised this question for me in my, in my mind about, uh, the way in which we live in a culture, which is, um, increasingly concerned with safety precautions and keeping us safe. Um, and a lot of that is done through the technologies that we employ. Um, it's, it's minor things. It's things like safety proof caps, and uh, warnings on your dryer and the fire, you know, the, the, the code requirements for all rooms to have uh, like a fire alarm. And, you know, there's like minor things that technologically take place. But then you start to get into kind of some more major features like child locks and uh, cars that warn you if you're beginning to drift or... Um, you can kind of multiply out the examples for yourself. So it began, since I've been reading so much Illich, and once you begin to read Illich, you begin to see kind of the things he's talking about everywhere. I began to wonder about this question of um, what is it that technology does with respect to this question of safety? So as I read Illich, this concern for uh, safety is a bit downstream. So let me explain how we get there. So Illich writes a great deal about the managed world, as I've described in the last couple of um, installments. 
mean, his concern with the managed world is because he wants to contrast it with the convivial world, a world in which people are free to explore and free to invent. People have what they need. And so um, it's a society in which the, the tools of production and the, the tools we have are shared. They're not kind of cordoned off so that only a specialized few get access to the things that are governing and steering society. But uh, it's a world in which you have people, uh, people are trained in a variety of ways and can engage in new discovery and new invention. It sounds pretty wonderful to me. Um, and so he says that the reason why we get such a managed society is because we are interested in becoming a productive society. So you tools get tools are no longer those things which make us free, but tools are those things which make us more productive. And so those things become more and more specialized over time so that only a fewer and fewer number of people can use them. And so he says, but this this drive toward being a productive society really inf it inflects itself and infects society at a number of levels. It affects the way that we think about uh, compulsory schooling, he says. Um, it affects the way that we think about medicine in shifting away from a model of doing no harm to trying to do the maximal good all the time. Um, you can kind of see the way if you... If begin to kind of step back, you see the way in which so many of our the things that we do in society are, are ordered around maximal production. Um, my kids are involved, in, my oldest is involved in kind of a youth baseball league, and it's hard to overestimate the way in which this productive imagination has infected even youth baseball. Um, his team practiced only one, like once a week, and it was great. The kids had fun. They learned how to play baseball. They won some games. It was good. There's other teams that they will train, and these are like eight or nine-year-olds. They'll practice like three times a week, and they'll take a group trip up to the batting cages, and um, it's bonkers. Like, I get wanting to have fun with the game, but there comes a point at which you're just trying to produce better players, and that takes over the reason for what you're doing. So this drive toward production, it really becomes everywhere. One of the things that has, as I have been reading him, that I've been thinking about is that with production and with this drive toward production, you, you don't take a whole lot of risks. You stick with what is working and you try to refine it and you may try to make it work well. And so this concept of this, one of the things that I think is happening when you have a managed society is you're trying to eliminate risk. You're trying to eliminate as much risk as you can because you want to be maximally, maximally productive. You don't want anything to interfere with the, um, the project that you have going on or the intention that you have. And so you try to do those things that you can to minimize risk. So Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lakoff wrote a book a number of years ago now called, um, gosh, what is the name of the book? Coddling of the American Mind, in which they talk about this phenomenon called safetyism. And they talk about it with respect to, um, they talk about it with respect to college students who I work with. So it was one I read out of kind of interest. Um, but I think that the argument that they present is mostly right. Their argument is that, I'm going to come back to Illich in just a second, so just bear with me. There is, there, so they wrote this in like 2013, and they wrote about it as kind of a, 
a warning of what they were observing upon college campuses. But the assumption, they said, that we make of students is that they are fragile. Not that they are resilient or not that they are open vessels wanting to learn, but that they come to colleges basically fragile. And so those who work on college campuses, such as myself, should do everything to build in corresponding forms of safety. We should um, provide trigger warnings on syllabi and discussions. We should um, provide and beef up uh, the 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 mental health care of our students. We should provide groups which um, help to foster an environment in which students don't have to have difficult conversations or difficult encounters, but can um, live a relatively safe life. So some of this, I think, is some of this, I think, is good. It is right and good to um, attend to the mental health care of students. Now, I think this is a much longer conversation, and I don't want to get into all kind of the ins and outs here, but let me just go ahead and just grant the premise here. I think it's good to care for the mental health care of students. I think that it's good to uh, try to create an environment in which you have students coming from different backgrounds and you cultivate an environment in which people become curious and which difference doesn't become um, kind of an implicit threat to uh, the members of a society. I think it's good to create, you know, to, if you're going to have a difficult conversation in class, to go ahead and preface it, not to kind of scare them about it, but just to kind of just say, hey, we're going to be talking about some difficult things and it's probably going to get a little bit uncomfortable for you. I think that a good I think that a, a good level of discomfort is good for our students. But I don't want to be a bully about it. I don't want to be a jerk about it. I'm going to go ahead and tell them, "Hey, this is going to be difficult. Let's have a f so in other words, it's fine to have some um it's fine to kind of take some precautionary measures and to do so out of a out of a desire to kind of walk your students into adulthood that being an adult is difficult and all sorts of discomfort comes with being an adult. And we're going to kind of give you a measured amount of that as, a, as college students. Um, so safetyism as Hayden Lykoff described it, um, is this assumption of fragility and that they're all become all these corresponding forms of safety, which get built into the college experience as a result. So it requires and this is where Illich comes back into the conversation. It requires building in all sorts of forms of management, all sorts of risk assessments, all sorts of evaluations and surveys and new administrative positions purely ordered around helping to keep students safe, creating cultures in which hard conversations and risk don't can be can be minimized to the to the maximal degree. So I began thinking about this question. I was thinking about Hayden Lakoff and kind of this, this way in which this form of elimination of risk with respect to students, like in what way is it, is it related to this thing, this ordinary thing of kind of putting nets up at a baseball game? And here's what I think I've come up with. And so this is my, this is my thesis here, that one of the things you find with this managerial culture is trying to make the risks visible. So there's some things in which the risk is 
immediate some things about our world in which the risk the threat is immediately visible um somebody walks into a place with a gun waving around that's a very visible kind of risk a baseball flies through the air toward the stands that's a very visible form of risk and so you can do something that's very measured and very modest in order to counteract a a visible form of risk it doesn't require a whole lot of extra management it just requires kind of a little bit of attention and care you know when you put a when you put a metal detector in a, put an airport then that's that's a measured form of safety for a visible kind well a quasi visible form of risk we'll get into the other stuff here in a second um, someone is hiding something, but it's something, it's an object which can be seen, right? So you put, a, you know, a prudential form of risk management in place to kind of take care of, a, you know, a manageable form of risk or manageable uh, threat. So the, what manage, what kind of the managerial spirit wants to do is it wants to take these risks and it wants to make them visible. It wants to bring them to the surface because if we can bring them to the surface, then we can do something about it. And because these risks all pose threats, not just to our lives, but to productivity. If someone walks through the airport with a gun, um, that is a threat to human life, but it's also, man, it just like cancels all of your flights for like an entire day and throws the whole system into chaos. If someone walks in with a gun on your school campus, it is immediately a threat to student life, and it is also disruptive to all of the classes on the entire campus for the entire day. So part of what management does is just trying to, like, you're thinking with Illichir about productivity, that the management of risk is always related to kind of these productive concerns as well. Management tries to, manage, like a managerial culture tries to take these invisible forms of risk and make them visible. So it's one thing to try to do that with a baseball game, but it's a very different kind of tr thing to try to do when you're talking about something that's invisible, like a student's psyche, right? How do you how do you make that visible? There's all sorts of risks that are approaching a student, but you can't see any of those psychic risks. You don't know when uh, this when a student who uh, a student who is racist is going to somehow pop off with some kind of unconsciously, like they don't intend it necessarily to be racist, though it may very well be racist, that they're going to say something in class that's just incredibly racist. You don't know when, um, I, I don't know when I'm going to say something in class that I don't even mean, think anything of, um, but it connects deeply with uh, some kind of, past event in a student's life that really makes them uncomfortable. I've had a, I've had a number of those conversations um, in class after the fact where a student was dealing with something that I had no clue or no idea about. And it was a very good conversation um, for both, for both of us. But uh, there's any number of those times when uh, a risk, the risk that is, confronted by students, particularly to their psyches, is invisible, and there's no way of guarding against it. So 
what do you do in that sort of situation? Well, you try to do all the things that you can to make the risk visible. You put, you require professors to have warnings in syllabus or syllabi, or you require professors to undergo um, annual trainings in various topics, or you institute policies that uh, introduce kind of rehabilitative measures when there's been an offense or punitive measures in some cases, or um, you try to, you, you install different administrative positions within the university to uh, manage student trauma or to um, ensure that all students find a, uh, all students' experiences are safe and managed to, I mean, to put it, to put it that way. Um, I don't mean to be entirely negative. Again, I think some precautions are good and some forms, some forms of, uh, some, some of these things are, are, are in a measured form are, are important to have around. But what man, what the managerial like ethos tries to do though, is to try to make these invisible risks visible. And when you're dealing with something as invisible as the psyche, what it does is generate further and further and further precautions. It becomes almost an endless building of precautions out because you're trying to get at something that ultimately can't be got at. It can't be made visible because if you can make the mind visible, then we're in a very bad place. Once our thinking is made visible and no longer completely obfuscated to it, you're firmly in the grasp of what Illich calls uh, just you have turned thinking into ideology. You have made it manageable. You have made it predictable. You have made it risk-free. We can take thought in all of its capaciousness. We can take thought in all of its wildness and its unpredictability. And we can turn it into a logically and, and a, a logic sequence that we can prepare for and control. That sounds like a terrible world to me. So as a Christian, here's where all this comes about down that I don't think that we don't live in a risk free world. We live in a world in which what we owe to one another is hospitality, which we owe to one another is kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and the fruits of the spirit. We, we are obligated. Like God gives this these things, and we are obligated to extend those things to one another. But that is different than saying that we live in a risk-free world. We live in a world um, in which I think we should be the the, the proper response to um, threats is not to try to manage our way out of all possible threats, but to be inquisitive, to enter into all of our relationships with curiosity. And that this is something that um, is incumbent upon all people to be curious uh, to those around them. But to have a world which assumes it, we we need to have a world which assumes not the elimination of all possible risk, but an ongoing need for reconciliation. That there will always be words which we extend, even in good faith, that will harm another person and will. Uh, offend another person. But if we, if we approach our, those conversations with one another 
with the presumption that they are being curious and that they are trying to extend themselves and offer themselves to you in that conversation, then it changes the game from always needing to be safe to assuming that we will always be making offense to one another, right? We will always be doing harm to one another in some form or fashion. And so what we need is not endless measures of safety elimination, of risk elimination or safety. What we need is ongoing forms of reconciliation, right? Without a default of measured risk uh, that our conversations and our engagements with one another will always be risky and will always be fraught and will always probably do harm that we don't intend, we never get to the point where we can actually engage with one another. We remain buffered from one another by endless measures of safety. So I think this is where Illich has, has helped me this morning to see, to tie some things together, that risk is just a part of the world. It's a feature of the world that cannot be eliminated. Um, to be in a society with other people is to enter into conversation and, dare I say it, community with other people who are not like myself, who are different, and who will probably harm me in some minor way all the time. But that's that's part of being in the world. And so what we need is um, community. Like we need forms of ongoing reconciliation. We need ways to productively reconcile ourselves, be reconciled to one another, um, not to be buffered from, from one another. So... Otherwise, we just give in to a culture which encourages us to maximize safety and to eliminate risk at all costs. And that is the road to a culture in which nothing, yeah, all you have is management. All right. Thanks for coming along on this little uh, podcasting experiment. Hope you enjoyed it.